You can stay standing if you want. I'm going to be standing the whole time. So, yeah, it's hard to sit down after standing on the promises. I get it. Uh, hope you got your Bibles. Open them up. You don't know where we're at tonight. We are in the book of Jonah. Book of Jonah. Third weekend, and we will finally finish up chapter one. Amen. Hallelujah. We'll actually work through chapter 2 tonight as well. Uh, let's back up a little bit to continue from where we left off uh, last week. And last week, uh, we left off with verse number 13. But to back up to verse number 12, uh, there it says that he said to them, Pick me up, throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us tonight as we continue our study into the book of Jonah. God, that we would see great truths about who you are. Just how great and mighty and sovereign you reign. Father, may we be encouraged, may we be challenged, and may we be convicted. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, verse number 12, recognizing the gravity of his disobedience that has ultimately resulted in the great storm upon the sea. Jonah was willing to endure punishment, even death. So he tells them to, to, to take him and, and throw him overboard, to throw him into the sea, because only then will the waters begin to be calm. So clearly, Jonah thinks this is his way out, literally. The way out, his final way out of his assignment from God. <laughs> but God, God has another plan for Jonah in his life because verse number 13 says, However, uh, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming even stormier against them. And then verse 14, Then they called on, on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. And so uh, the sailors, however, they're not very anxious, nor are they very excited about the idea of having to take a man and throw him overboard. They don't want to be held accountable for the shedding of his blood. And so instead of throwing him overboard, they begin to row desperately trying to get back to safety. And so all of their efforts are for naught because these meager, muscled men, however strong they might be, are nothing compared to the power and the might of our Lord. And so instead of the, the seas calming, Scripture tells us that they even intensified at this point. So, so God is going to uh, have his will accomplished. No man can come against the will and the plan of God. And so, recognizing the futility of their efforts and believing that Jonah's God is a God that can control the seas, they, uh, they, they finally realize that Jonah's instruction has to be carried out. So look at verse 15. 
So, so they picked up Jonah, they threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. So following after the prophet's instructions back in verse number 12, these sailors finally threw Jonah into the raging sea, and then immediately the sea became calm. This shows us the reality and the power of the God of Jonah. And so utterly amazed at, at what they have witnessed, utterly amazed at how sudden the seas got calm, these men offer a sacrifice of praise unto the Lord. They offer a sacrifice of praise and they make vows unto the Lord. And then it keeps on going because God's not done with his prophet. It's not just about throwing him overboard. It's not just how God is sovereign and he controls the sea. He controls everything that's in the seas as well too. Because verse number 17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. Clearly, uh, Jonah expected death when he went overboard. Surely he expected to die once they threw him into the raging sea. But the sovereignty of God is evidence in his providing of a great fish to come at the exact moment to take Jonah in, if you will. In fact, this is the second of five things that are in the book of Jonah that we see how God provided something. Earlier in, in chapter 1, we see that God is the one that, that made the great wind on the sea. And so now we see that God is the one that, that sent the great fish to swallow Jonah up. By the time we get to chapter 4, we're going to see that God is the one that provides a plant, he provides a, a worm, and he provides a scorching east wind as well. God is sovereign over all of this. So God not only controls the sea, but he controls everything that is contained within it. And so by means of this massive sea monster, God preserved Jonah alive, only to later deposit him on dry land, ultimately unhurt. I want you to see that phrase there, where it says that he was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. We'll come back to that at the very end, but just to help you right now, this doesn't necessarily mean that Jonah was in the great fish for a literal 72 hours. I just want you to understand that he was in there at least 24 consecutive hours and at some extended point on either way of those days. In other words, how they would record time, any part of a day was considered to be a full day. So Jonah would have been in, in, in that great fish for 24 hours, plus and minus however many minutes, hours on either side of that 24-hour time period. Does that make sense to you? Or did I just bring confusion? We're good? I don't know why I wanted to clarify that. I just thought it was important to do so. So let's look at Jonah's prayer. Notice what happens. He says at the end of chapter 1, 
that Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2 begins with the word, what? What does yours say? First word in chapter 2, verse 1. Then, then, that one word makes me overwhelmingly convinced that this prayer that is uttered by Jonah occurs at the end of that cycle. It says that he was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. Let's just read through the whole prayer. And he said, I call out of my distress to the Lord. And he answered me. I cried for a help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars were around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Once you understand that that whole prayer is a prayer of repentance, fully convinced it's a prayer of repentance. It's also interesting that there's no, there's no request in the midst of all of this. There, there's just declarations of who God is and, and, and Jonah's confidence of what God is going to do. Like, you understand, Jonah is thrown overboard into a raging sea, and then he gets swallowed up by a massive fish of some kind, right? And so then he's now in the belly of that fish. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. I can't imagine he's able to sit down in the belly of a fish. And in my, in my mind, the scene is like he's, he, he's laying, he's flopping, he's flipping around. There's got to be some type of acidic feel or smell. It's got to be just desperate feeling. I mean, he can't see anything. You get that picture? Total darkness. Unsure of what's happening to him. Unsure of where he's at. That, that, that one verse that says, oh, where'd he go? Now, there it is, verse number five. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I'm sure it wasn't until after the, the great fish spit him out and vomited him on dry land that, that he realized, oh, those were weeds. Okay, I get it. I can imagine just in that darkness and in that desperation feeling something like starting to take over you and not knowing what's happening. Like I'm fully convinced that, that, that Jonah thinks that, that he's in shield, that he's gone, that it's over. 
But then he cries out. He gives this great prayer of repentance. How am I convinced that it's a prayer of repentance when we don't see any actual words of repentance directly expressed in this prayer? I feel that because there in verse number 9, when he says, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. So praise cannot be genuine if it's not accompanied with genuine repentance. Now, Jonah has a whole lot of work that's going to have to be done in his life. Jonah doesn't get vomited out of this great fish, and he's like all good, and he's going to walk in perfect obedience unto God. Oh, he's going to carry out the instructions of the Lord. He's going to fulfill God's calling on his life, but he's not going to do it with the best of attitudes. He's going to do it. I kind of think he's going to do it just to get it done rather than uh, a true eager and joy behind it. Which I want, I want to highlight this from the book of Jonah. It's easy to look at this book and, and think, oh, let, let's pick on Jonah, right? Let's highlight who he is and all of his failures and what's his issue. Like I said in the very first uh, week that we began this study, I, I called Jonah, I classified him as like the racist prophet. There's so much hatred for his enemies that he wants nothing to do with them. He wants nothing to do with their deliverance. He wants them to just punish. He wants them to die. Ultimately, I'm convinced Jonah wants them to go to hell. And so the, the fact that God would use them to, to bring a message of repentance, and Jonah knows the deal. Jonah knows that if they repent, then he knows the character and the nature of his God, and his God is going to forgive them and receive them into his family. And he wants nothing of it. It's easy to kind of like highlight Jonah in this. I would encourage you not to do that. Not, Jonah's not the main point in this whole story, in this whole narrative. For me, what I see in, when I'm reading through it is the character, the nature, and the love of God for his people. That God will go to whatever lengths are necessary in order for those that are going to come into repentance so that they will come into a place of repentance. So anyway, back to my notes. I don't even know where I left off. Oh, notice how... Uh, he accepts God's discipline. Go back to verse number three. Verse number three says, For you had cast me into the deep. All your breakers and billows passed over me. When Jonah said these words, he was acknowledging that God was disciplining him, uh, as well as acknowledging that he deserved the discipline that God was inflicting upon his life, which is so critical. Because how we respond to discipline determines the benefit we're going to receive from that discipline. I want to show you this in, in scripture. So turn with me if you would to your uh, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews. To get to Hebrews, we're going to go to chapter 12. Right, Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to start reading there in verse number, I'll just start with verse number 4. It says, and you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And then here we go. It says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, 
and he scourges every son whom he receives. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. And then it says in verse number 11, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. According to what we just read, there are several options for how we can respond to discipline. According to verse number 5, we can despise God's discipline and fight. According to, uh, to verse 5, it also says that we can be discouraged by God's discipline and, and grow faint or grow weary. Verse number 9 tells us that we can resist discipline and even invite stronger discipline into our lives and, and, and possibly even death. Or the better way is that we can submit to the Father who loves us, and that's why he disciplines us. We can submit to the Father, and in our submission and through our submission, we can mature in faith and in love. So discipline to the believer is what exercise and training is for the athlete. It enables us to, to run the race with endurance so that we can reach our assigned goal from our Lord. That's why I go back to the beginning of Hebrews 12. Verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So here we see back to Jonah now. Thankfully, in the midst of the belly of this great fish, Jonah comes to a point and a place of repentance in his life. Sitting there in the belly of this fish, Jonah feeling completely cut off from God, completely cast out from the Lord's presence. He felt that he had been banished to Hades, to, to the world of the dead. But there in the, the pitch black darkness, in what he thought was Hades, Jonah promised to return to the promised land and, and to serve the Lord once again. Back to verse 9. But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Then he says this phrase, salvation is from the Lord. And my judgment 
I think that is the most important statement that is made in this entire book. Salvation is from the Lord. There are several things that we need to note about that statement. And understand that Jonah in this term, in this con context, is speaking about deliverance of his circumstance. But there are several things that we need to learn and extract from the promise or the statement, the declaration, that salvation is from the Lord. Which means salvation is God's work for us. It is never man's work for God. Get that. It's God working for us, what he does for us, not what we can do for him. God cannot, God will not save us based upon our works, based upon our efforts. Because the only thing, the best that we could ever present to God, no matter how good we might think that it is, is still imperfect. It's still tainted with, with, with some sin. And because it, even if it has the slightest of imperfection, God does not accept, nor will he receive imperfection. Because he is completely righteous. All holy. He cannot welcome imperfection in, in, into his presence. That's why there's the great exchange that happens. Jesus on the cross, he takes on all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our punishment. And he dies on the cross as the sacrifice for that. And for those that put their faith and trust in him, then not only did Jesus take on our sin, then we are credited for his righteousness. It's that double imputation is what it's called. Sin is imputed on him. His righteousness is imputed in us. So it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God and what God has done. And so if it depends, if salvation depends on us, on our works, if it depended upon us doing something, whatever that something is, or however much that something would be, we would never, ever receive salvation. Scripture tells us that we're dead in trespass and sin. So if deliverance is to come, it is going to come because salvation is from the Lord. Beautiful phrase. I've often said this since I've been here, and I've made the connection that there are three tenses to our salvation. This isn't new. You have, you've heard this from me before. I'm going to expand on it a little bit tonight. What I mean by there's three tenses of salvation, there's the past tense of salvation, the present tense of salvation, and the future tense of salvation. I have said things like this to you before. Because I put my faith and trust in Jesus, I have been saved, past tense. What have I been saved from in the past? Well, I've been saved from the penalty that my sin deserves. Okay? But not only is it past tense, it's present tense. And so not only have I been saved, I am being saved. Being saved from what? I'm being saved from the practice of sin. That is the sanctification work that God is doing in me, in my life, through the power of the Holy Spirit working through me. But, but so there's a past tense, there's a present tense, and then there's a future tense. So I had been saved, I am being saved, and then one day, ultimately, I will be saved. 
And we use the term for that as the glorification of the saints. Let's back up to the past tense. So I have been saved. Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse number 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And doesn't it come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So, so the moment that you put your faith and trust in Jesus, then according to the word of God, you've now stepped out from death unto life. What do you mean death? Well, we're dead in our trespass and sin. So you've made the transition from death unto life. And, and you're now possessors of eternal life. John 3.16 is the one that we all know. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have, have, currently possess eternal life. And so, if at some point in the past you've trusted Christ as your Savior, that was all his work. You trusted in what he did and what he provided. We often quote John 3.16. We rarely, but should more often quote John 3.36. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has, again, has, present tense, has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So we all currently possess one of two things. You either possess eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, or if you don't have faith in Jesus, then you possess the wrath of God on your life. That's what's at stake here. And so you receive life, eternal life, when you trust in Jesus. And you did nothing, nothing whatsoever to receive that. He offered it as a gift. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So speaking personally, I have been saved. And so how was I saved? I was saved by trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. That's why it says, according to Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Listen, it says, He who saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. So it's not on the basis of anything that we have done, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. All credit goes to the Lord in salvation. So I have been saved, past tense. And then there's the, the tense, the present tense of I am being saved. Praise be the God that God is not done with us. He continues to, to work through us and in our lives. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, that is in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So
So, so we're to work out our salvation, and it's God who works in us. Let me say this. You can't work out salvation unless God has already done the work in you. Make sense? The only way that we're able to work it out is by God working in us. And so that's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that nobody can boast. But, but, but he doesn't stop there. We often stop there when we quote this passage. But there's so much more to it. Because the very next verse, he goes on to say in verse number 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Which means you put your faith in Jesus, then you're his workmanship. That, that, that you were created in Christ Jesus, that you were given a new life. That's not all. There's a purpose and a point for receiving that new life because he adds, created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, we, we've been set free from the penalty of sin. We're to be growing in Christ-like maturity so that we can be faithful and obedient to doing the good works which he's prepared for us to do. Well, that's, a, that's an awesome thing. But so many of us have grown lazy and just, quite frankly, disobedient in our lives because we, we, we think that we're done. And I, I did my time of service. I, I used to do all that stuff. Now it's time for the, the younger kids to step up. and It's their turn to, to do those things. But there's no retirement from doing the good works that God created us to do. Do you know when you're retired? When you're dead. I don't mean that to be, like, morbid, but that's the reality. As long as you have breath, then you have a purpose to fulfill for the honor and for the glory of God. There is no retiring from doing the good work that God's created us to do. So we need to keep that in mind. So, so not only have I been saved, I am being saved day by day, moment by moment. It means I ought to be a better believer today than I was yesterday, than I was last week, last year, last year decade, whatever. There should be this growth and maturity that is happening in us. Because here's the deal. There, the other reality about life is as long as you're alive, then you've got room to grow. You've got areas to be improved. Weaknesses to be strengthened. I've got room for growth. I'm thankful that God's not done with me yet. Salvation is from the Lord. So there's the past tense, the present tense, and then we get to the future tense. I have been saved, I am being saved, and then ultimately one day I will be saved. There's coming a day when I will be finally and fully saved, completely set free from the very presence of sin. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse number 11, he captures it like this. 
He says, salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. What a beautiful thing. And so let's go back to, I digress, let's go back to Jonah. Jonah says, that which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Final out, verse number 10. Verse number 10 says, then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on the dry land. A couple of thoughts that I have. I, let me be clear. This is just a personal opinion. So take it for whatever it's worth. It's not worth much, by the way. But I, I'm imagining this great fish had to beach itself for it to vomit Jonah up out on dry land. Otherwise, that's one long distant vomit from a great fish. For That's a projectile vomit that has to occur for Jonah to end up on, on dry land. Yeah, aren't you glad to get the middle visual picture of, of what's going on here? So after the deliverance of Jonah from the watery grave, the Lord commands the great fish to deposit the prophet on dry land. I want you to recognize that seven miracles have already occurred in this short narrative. Seven. In verse number four of chapter one, we see that God caused the violent storm. Verse number seven, we see that God caused the, the lots to fall upon Jonah. Verse number 15, God immediately calmed the sea when Jonah was thrown overboard. That wasn't enough. In the beginning of verse number 17, we see that he commanded the fish to swallow Jonah. That's four. Number five, that he had the fish transport him safely. Number six, he had the, the fish throw Jonah up on dry land. And perhaps the greatest miracle of all is that God melted the disobedient heart of its rebellious prophet. It's evidenced by the Thanksgiving prayer there in chapter 2. Let me help you with this. That the point to be stressed through all of this, I think, so far, is the fact that Jonah's three days and three nights in that giant fish's stomach ultimately pointed uh, to a future event. It was pointing to the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it was through Jonah's three-day experience that he was given a new life and a new beginning. And so it is with us through the death, burial, and, and resurrection of our Lord that we too can receive new life a new beginning, a fresh start, a second chance. Aren't you glad for that? Isn't that a beautiful thing? Now, then next week, we're going to work through, we'll probably work through all of chapter 3, and then the week after, we'll most likely work through all of chapter 4. Keep reading it. Keep studying it. May it be fresh on your mind when we come here to, to open it up together. And may we find great encouragement in seeing just 
how much God loves and how much God has a, a plan and a purpose and no individual can come against the will of God. Can't. I, I think it's interesting. I didn't even point this out, so I'll point it out now. When Jonah's in the belly of this great fish, it says that he looks up towards Jerusalem. Ever since he started his disobedience, it's been a downward journey. He goes down to Joppa. He gets on the ship. He goes down in the ship. And then ultimately he says, hey, throw me over and down into the sea. And it's in the midst of all that downward journey when the giant fish swallows him up, completely lost in darkness and feeling separated and isolated from God, that Jonah reaches the point of repentance declares his praise unto God. He knows God is faithful and will forgive him, and that's why he can speak with confidence in this prayer about his deliverance. Oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. Might be, personal opinion, might be one of the most beautiful prayers that are in Scripture for me. Anyway, let me pray, and then let's share a little bit together tonight. So, Father, I thank you for tonight. Thank you for allowing us to gather to open up your word god may we love your word more and more because we know how we treat your word as a reflection on how we treat you father so god may we love your word may we know you by knowing your word and may we be obedient to you by being obedient to this word it's in christ's name i pray